Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So today I want to take a little trip down uh, down memory lane. I know I promised uh, all of you out there uh, another um, another Rwanda podcast. That's just going to have to wait because this one comes first. I, I'm delighted to welcome two of my good friends, uh, Julia Granovet and Dan Hernandez. Uh, onto the podcast. Uh, Dan has already been on the podcast to talk about uh, about election issues and changing demographics in the state of Nevada. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, the three of us were all journalists together working for various newspapers uh, in 2011 when the Arab Spring erupted. So I thought it would be cool to, to take a little chip down memory lane and compare that that naive and optimistic moment with today's hellish reality. Um, so uh, Dan and Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Joe. Well, I was just going to say that it's nice that we managed to, to uh, all three of us are in different time zones. We're spread pretty evenly, you know, across the world. We have uh, we have DH in, uh, in California. No, sorry, in, uh, in Nevada. Joe, you're in D.C., and I'm in Oslo. So it's very international. Yeah, United Nations of Journalists. Yeah. Um, Julia, I understand that uh, how cold is it in, in Oslo right now? Uh, are we allowed to swear on this thing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll just make this one of those those. That's that's how cold it is. I'm just going to answer it that way. It's okay. horrible. <laughs> um, I I heard that there was a moose attack. Oh yeah, there was a there was a crazy. In fact, I think the police tweeted that an angry moose was in the city center <laughs> as opposed to just a normal moose. So it was eventually. Um, for some reason, they didn't. They didn't just, you know, put it to sleep and cart it back to the woods, but they they did actually shoot them. Oh, did, 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 was the was the moose? Did the moose survive this encounter? The moose did not or did survive. Its anger, oh no! Its anger got the best of it. It surrendered to fear and hate. That was the path to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Dan, you are in. Uh, you are out in in uh, Las Vegas. For those who did not tune into our earlier podcast that you were on, you are actually the first repeat uh, uh, guest on this podcast. So congratulations there! Wow, what an honor! Uh, uh, just just uh, give our listeners a little bit about what you uh, you do now. Well, I'm a freelance contributor to the Guardian, and I write fiction as well, and. I teach at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, um, undergraduate writing classes. And by the way, Julia, right here it's sunny about maybe 50? No. <laughs> it's about 40 degrees. Not. What's the most situation? Do you have a lot of mooses? Mice? We don't. We don't have much of those. We have uh, coyotes. Oh. And they're very happy right now. So, so let, uh, let's briefly run down uh, sort of because we were all the, so we were all at the UN in in 2011. We have since, as has been demonstrated here, gone our, our separate ways. But uh, going back to 2011, I th- it's it's I think it's important to just remember back to how hopeful everything seemed because we're sitting there in in the press room, and this was one of the great things about working at the UN was just watching history happen before our eyes as like young working professionals it's sort of unusual to get that kind of opportunity and it was it was it was pretty sweet on the whole but uh it starts off with tunisia 
and there's an uprising, you know, there's a popular protest and Ben Ali flees the country. And, uh, and then it moved on to Egypt and then to Libya and then to Syria. And we just had no idea how bad everything was going to go. But, but, um, I, I don't know what, uh, thinking back to that time, what, what are the, what are the memories that really strike you as the, the most sort of the things that stood out at that time? I could say that it was a time of like great optimism. I, I, I can't believe how, um, I guess naive we all were, uh, regarding the situation in Libya, at least. I remember the striking, one of my, my most striking memories of, of the UN period in general was to see the Libyan diplomats uh, tearfully pleading for the UN to authorize force. To yeah, intervene. that was the most, the, possibly, I think, the most exciting moment I had at the UN ever was that Security Council meeting where they authorized, what was it, Resolution 1973? Yeah. Initially, it was 1970, and then 73 was the one that authorized all necessary measures. Exactly. Yeah. It was really emotional. It was dramatic, which was very unusual for the for the Security Council. Yeah. Usually, the Security Council, you walk in knowing everything that's going to happen and literally every word that's going to be said by everyone, and, and to the point that you could just write the speeches yourself. And that was not the case. Initially, you had the the Libyan deputy ambassador Ibrahim um, uh, Dabashi basically defect from his own government and, and called you know, Gaddafi live, a tyrant. Like Security Council meeting. Yeah. It was amazing. And, and then, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he, he was just, he was just like Gaddafi is, has lost his mind and he's bombing his own people. And we need, we need help to protect our country from our own leader. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And then, the, the senior ambassador was a, a longtime ally of Gaddafi's and he waited for sort of stricken, devastated days before finally tearfully coming before us and, and, and also defecting and saying that he just couldn't believe that his, his, his brother Gaddafi, not his literal brother, but you know, um, was, was doing this, but that it seemed to be happening. It was, and at that point, there seemed to be a degree of, of international unity that this was the the reason why something like the Security Council was created was was to protect you know people from from tyrannical actions of this sort and you had unity across or at least you know acceptance across uh, the UN Security Council's permanent members. It was really hard for Russia and China to play the state sovereignty card because. Libya's own diplomats were asking for the intervention. But the thing, though, I mean, this is the thing that, that I think that a lot of people, you know, who weren't there, you know, have lost technology on it. Because, you know, the re- at the time, um, do you guys remember that the the people who were pushing for a Western intervention in Libya were not, in the beginning, the Americans. It was the French, I think, and the British, as far yeah. as I can recall. Yeah, you're right. And we the kept Americans asking. Came in at the last minute. And they intended to save the day. It was really annoying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it took a while. We kept asking them, you know, what's your position on this? And then they kept they stalled and stalled and stalled until they finally turned all the way around. And then they started leading the charge. As far as I can remember, they tried to own it at the last minute. And then the yeah. French and the British were pretty annoyed, as I recall. But one one of the things that I think the U.S. I mean, maybe maybe this is just my reading of of what was there at the time. But one thing that struck me was that the French and the British were basically calling for a no fly zone as if that was going to be enough. 
And the United States was holding its cards close to the vest and nobody even knew what they were thinking at all. And then finally they march yep. into the room and, and say, not only is no fly zone not going to be enough, because the thing is, Qaddafi is the leader of the country. As long as mm. there's a rebellion going on in his own country, he's going to try to quash it. The Americans understood that to, to actually take action against Qaddafi and protect civilians meant regime change. And that's why they insisted for the phrase all necessary measures in Resolution 1973. And they really came out and, and, and like sort of leapfrogged what the, the Brits and the French were doing. And, and I think a bit more of a realistic way. Yeah, in a way that was apparently viewed as disingenuous <laughs> or dishonest by Russia and India, the, uh, the Brit countries. The if you remember, they were, they were like... They didn't tell us they were going to be bombing convoys and stuff. So <laughs> they they took it to mean a typical no-fly zone, as I recall. And the ambiguity of the language uh, became really contentious for years. I, I think they still probably blame that particular resolution for a lot of the gridlock that that followed in Syria and other places. But here's, but here's the thing, though, is that you know at the time that that resolution was adopted. There wasn't a soul in the United Nations who was against that resolution being adopted. It was like it was cheered through the Security Council. As far as I can recall, it was unanimous. Um, am I right, Joe? Uh, I think that I think there might have been abstentions, but no, no one voted against it. Right? No, yeah. I mean, yeah, because Russia and China abstained. I think China abstained. I'm not sure, though, because, because you know, the thing that happened at the time was that, you know, it was seen as a very interesting development because uh, it was seen as proof that uh, China took its cue from uh, what the African Union wanted. That, and since the African Union, in its meeting, had decided to call for this kind of a, a resolution from the Security Council, the Chinese couldn't very well, uh, and the Russians too, I guess, couldn't very well call for this uh you know, you play, say the usual sovereignty thing, because then they would be going against, you know, the African Union expressed wish. We're, 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 get, we're getting 1970 and 1973 mixed up. 1970 was unanimous, but when 1973, the all necessary measures took five countries off the table and, and, they, and they abstained. But um, but yeah, 1970 was, was unanimous. And that was a really kind of a, a watermark moment. There's another part of this that I think kind of plays into it, which is that right before that, the, the council had unanimously and decisively acted in Cote d'Ivoire after Laurent Bagbo basically tried to steal the elections there. And uh, so there was this moment where people were, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of journalism is, is reporting on trends real or imagined. And there were a lot of stories that came out of Turtle Bay that were like, the new UN comedy. Everybody is on board. Everybody's there's there's unanimity unanimity in the UN Security Council. Everybody's getting along. The finally the council can take action and be the country that it was. You know, be, be, sorry, be the representative body that it was supposed to be. And what nobody understood was that like in Co in Cote d'Ivoire only the French cared and, and in, um, no, in no, Libya. No, no. That's not true. I mean, apparently Cote d'Ivoire was important for the world's chocolate markets because they produce amazing cocoa. And that's the reason that that was a very important conflict. 
Yes, it's it's true. We, we've actually done a a, a Cote d'Ivoire podcast um, earlier uh, about the the 2016 elections when when Alassane Ouattara was reelected um, freely and fairly with more than 80 percent of the vote. So, but here's know, the thing: we're getting, we're getting sidetracked because you know the thing that we're comparing here is that you know we hadn't yet seen you know the Libya thing. It was it was uh, it was cheered through the council as far as I can recall. There wasn't like a, there wasn't a soul. And correct me if I'm wrong here. You guys were there too. Was anyone asking any critical questions about the post-conflict Libya at the time that Resolution 1973 was adopted? Anyway, was Paul. I'm pretty sure India was ex- was extremely cynical cynical about the whole thing. Really? Yeah. Don't you remember those um, dinners that we went to where he was really railing yeah. about it? Um, Not really. To be honest, uh, I mean. I guess I'm thinking of like in the immediate. Yeah, in India, the, the, there were five abstentions on 1973: Brazil, China, India, Russia, and Germany. Germany was the particularly shocking one. They, yeah. they just, yeah, um, huh. and and they were not involved. But but the thing was that there was unanimity that Gaddafi was doing terrible things. It wasn't like Syria wasn't where there was that. not. You have to you have to add that Gaddafi had made a, a threat. That he was literally going to kill every soul in Benghazi or something like that. Do you, can you pull up that? Hunt them down like rats. Where it was, I something believe, his, like dogs his, or his rats. Yeah. Quote. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah, I remember it was at the time. At the time, I, I was actually emailing with the with the former uh, Libyan uh, attaché. I forget his name right now, but he was actually in Benghazi and he was sending me these breaking emails, you know, saying. You know, rescue us. Basically, yeah. it was astonishing. It felt like life or death that very night. Uh, they were like, "Let's see now, or a city of people are going to die." And, and you know, Tunisia had just happened, and and Egypt had just happened, where there had been these these sort of dramatic scenes of people protesting in the street and um, Mubarak showing up late, refusing to resign. There, there, <laughs> there was some. Um, uh, Julia, what was the hashtag that you that that you loved so much? Oh, it was it was hilarious. It was it was um, you know we were, we were everybody was glued to Al Jazeera. You remember this? I mean, like the office was like oh, a big yes. open area, right? So our our Al Jazeera was on a little bit of delay, so we could hear like other people's Al Jazeera like a second before ours. Um, <laughs> that's how we knew that we were all watching the same thing. Um, and then we were waiting for this speech, I think, by Mubarak. And then he just never showed up. And then on this, this Twitter thing started trending. It was like, reasons Mubarak is late. Hmm. <laughs> and then they were like, you know, oh, yeah, he can't find his bathing suit to go join, you know, Ben Ali, uh, whatever. It is. <laughs> uh, or, you know, he can't he can't fit all his gold bars into the suitcases fast enough you know, and all that stuff. Um, they were pretty funny. My, my favorite. So he finally gives this rambling speech where everyone's waiting for him to say he resigns and he doesn't. And then the next day, the U.S. was k- kind of nudged him. They were like, old friend, it's time. So then he resigned. But there was there was a great in the middle of his, his long and rambling speech. Matthew Iglesias gave what my favorite tweet of basically the whole Arab Spring. It was, I'm going to uh-huh. let you finish. But Gamal Abdel Nasser is the greatest Egyptian dictator of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, th- this happened. So here's my question, which is th- there's been this long running dispute over whether in the aftermath of the Libya 
resolution and the military action that the U.S. famously led from behind that clearly was designed to remove Gaddafi from power. The, the Russians were like, we were bamboozled and we're, we're going to take this out on Syria and block any any council That's unanimity so in Syria. Because, I mean, it's like it's not as if that they, they've somehow misplaced their veto for the time it took to have that situation. <laughs> And then well, just you, found it again, you know, later. They're like, oh, there it was. It was in my pocket the whole time. Silly me, you know. Honestly, I mean, if they had, if they were able to see the future, and if they had had, you know, uh, if they had wanted to veto this, you know, it's not as if they're afraid to be the only one in the room saying no. Well, you know what happened with them? Uh, yeah. Dmitry Medvedev was in charge, and that was the end of his political career. Um Putin never forgave him for authorizing that. And yeah, they were, I'm pretty sure they were already vetoing Syria resolutions before Libya though. And it was, it was a, it was a, you know, a red herring that this was the reason they, yeah, they were, I mean, they weren't. This, like this follows like a pattern of Russian behavior. I mean, because they did the same thing when it, they're talking about like I think it was like the first Gulf War or something like that, saying that they were tricked. You know, that it was unclear language. They didn't know the resolutions going to be used for that later on. It's like you know they didn't stop it at the time they had the chance to stop it. So then they don't like the outcome, and then they're like, oh, we were tricked. The other thing to remember is that that. Libya and Syria were always different. Gaddafi had no friends. Libya is a highly fractious tribal society, but it doesn't have the sort of geopolitical, you know, these guys are supporting this faction, these guys are supporting this faction, major sectarian uh, regional implications that something like Syria did. And it didn't have the kind of great power backing from any power. I mean, its closest friends at that point were probably the Europeans with whom it had close security relations and was selling all its oil. I think he had connections to Russia. Gaddafi. But but not the kind that that Russia would would come out and defend him the way they would like Russia's Russia's out, Russia is an out and out ally of of or Assad yeah. the Assad government in Syria is an out and out ally of the Russian government. Right. Russia has a military base there. The Syrian elite all study military tactics in Russia. They learn Russian. Like there's intermarriage. There's these long-standing relationships that don't go back to the 1960s. And Gaddafi just didn't have any friends like that who were going to back him up at the UN Security Council. The UN Security Council was never going to do this in Syria. And the, uh, uh, I mean, that, that was always my impression. The, the geopolitical fault lines were just too deep in Syria for, for, to have that kind of I council unanimity. That I, really, I mean, I, I was not really very closely aware of the geopolitical fault lines in Syria. I mean, like, it's just like another Middle Eastern country, I mean, of, of incredible complexity that I will never grasp. Um, you know, and which superpower, Western superpower or, or other superpower has which particular interests and, you know, naval bases and all these other things just really wasn't on my radar. Uh, and in the question is, you know, how many people at the UN really knew Syria in great detail at the time when the conflict first started and we first started to see the outlines of the, of the, of the positions? Probably just the journalists from Lebanon and um, yeah, Israel, right? One of the things that strikes me is that the council, people often pillory it as 
this unrepresentative body with illegitimate vetoes that warp the international system. But I'm often amazed at how accurate it is at, at reflecting international, international sentiment. If you can get th- those particular five countries, the two European ones, the United States, China, and Russia, to back mm-hmm. something, you probably have a degree of international consensus that allows you to take action that's legitimate. If you can't get all of them, there's probably a major great power fault line like in Syria. And it really mm-hmm. reflects the that Syria was far more divided than Libya was and that Syria was going to be much more complicated and and and, and, and descend into this, this sectarian hell uh, in a way that Libya, not that Libya turned out super great so far. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, I was, but, but I was just going to like, disagree with you. I mean, because honestly, I mean, Libya is, you know, I mean, we can reprise, you know, other discussions we've had, you know, what is worse? We've had a thousand of those discussions. You know, what is honestly worse today? Is it Libya or is it Syria? Uh, I, I would say Syria because way, way more people have died. I mean, half the population of Syria is displaced. It's a, it's a shocking... I, I've, it's a much bigger I've country. Sell, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, Libya's got like five million people. But but what Libya, you, you've got these sort of factions controlling various different regions. And what you basically have is something closer... Yes, but in addition to that, you know, Libya is, is fueling, you know, this incredible, like, um, proliferation of uh, weapons and weaponry throughout the entire region and destabilizing basically everything around it. You know, I mean, that has to be considered part of the Libya situation. And, and, the, and in that sense, you know, which is really worse, which is worse, which is a worse threat, I guess, to international peace and security. An argument could be, could be made that Libya is just bad. Yeah, no, Libya is definitely a freaking mess. But the scale of the humanitarian disaster and the, ramifications on the rest of the international community i don't think it really compares to what's going on in syria but i mean are you counting all the libyans that are drowning in the mediterranean i mean there's a it's it's a crisis and it's no, not there are sure. more here, here's my here's my argument there are more humans displaced in in uh in uh syria than there are humans in libya in totality um but also like you have the in Libya, what you have is basically a lack of I mean, because each country is unique. That was one thing that we didn't really, I mean, people in the region knew this, but like it, it didn't really get the press coverage. You saw this way, these wave of, of popular protests and revolutions across a bunch of different countries, but each one of these countries has its own unique uh, mm. set of characteristics. Libya was dominated by, you know, it was defined by the fact that there was there were basically no institutions. The kind of institutional, stabilizing, bureaucratic framework that you mm. would expect from a country, Gaddafi had, had deliberately de-emphasized those things. There wasn't really things, something like, you know, an, an army or a police force to, to, to restore, you know, to, to restore order or to maintain stability during the transition. He had deliberately de-emphasized these institutions to increase his own power and at the end it was basically just like him and a bunch of chatty and mercenaries and a few close allies who were running the country and so when that was removed it, you had something much closer to but here's anarchy the, here's the thing though i mean that just sounds awfully a lot like another country in the middle east that was recent you know that also you know had a strong man who was forcibly removed by the united states in the lead 
there is an element of that, but like you you had with with Iraq, you had the sort of Baathist framework. Iraq actually looks a lot like Syria to me. They're both countries that were deeply divided and ruled by a minority sectarian strongman who was who didn't claim himself sectarian, but just surrounded himself with mostly people from his own sect. And when that the, in the in the case of of Iraq, the United States overthrew. Saddam and unleashed sectarian chaos. In the case of Syria, the strongman is still there. He just only controls about a third of the country. And and so you've still got sectarian chaos. But like in Syria, you have multiple great powers and multiple regional powers who have a zero-sum game. Like, we absolutely need to keep our guy in or we absolutely need to get that guy out. And that just didn't happen in Libya. And I think that's why Syria has descended into this, this exactly. hopeless case. And this case brings me back to, to another thing, Joe. If you remember, we were, we were talking about this once. We were talking about um, if the Western powers had truly been um, genuine in their wish um, to see the lowest possible number of civilian casualties, then what they should have done was to intervene immediately on the side of the government and beaten down... <laughs> the uh the uh the opposition and thereby saved basically most of the lives in syria place would have been intact and and and, uh uh russia would have uh, stayed in power do you remember making this argument joe yeah, I, I I do. It, it's it's actually an argument that's kind of lifted from some research by Paul Collier that basically mm-hmm. rebellions happen where it's physically possible for rebellions to have happen, where there's cross-border sanctuary, where the, the writ of the government is not universal, um, where there's extractive, lootable resources that can be used by rebels, kind of like how ISIS is, is able to sell oil on the black market. And, uh-huh. uh, and Collier argues that basically if you want to end the war as quickly as possible, you cut off rebel access to everything because mm-hmm. that's the most stable way to end the conflict. And in fact, there is a precedent for this in, in Syria. There was a, a kind of low grade civil war that had many of the same dynamics to it in the late seventies and early eighties. And the government ended by basically just leveling the city of homes at the end. And it was horrible. And about 20, anywhere from 20 to 40,000 people died. It depends who you ask, but then it was over and you had 25 years of uneasy peace. And, mm-hmm. Compare that to today, where you have a quarter of as many of a, as a quarter of a million people dead, and more Syrians displaced than not displaced. Uh, it's you know you could make an argument that if we if from a strictly humanitarian perspective, not a political you know not in terms of just you know not a, not a pro democracy, not even a, a sort of geostrategic kind of you know we want to stick it to the Iranians because they support you know and Hezbollah because they support this terrible regime, but from a strictly like we want to save human lives, even if those human lives have to dwell under dictatorial Stalinist misery. Um, yeah, because then you get into this like, really philosophical, like what kind, what kind of life do you want for these people? And, you know, it was really a choice. I feel like my takeaway here is that revolutions suck. Like it, 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 some of them <laughs> wind up producing good outcomes in the long run, but revolutions that you know it, it involves literally overturning the old order and a breakdown of law and order because that law mm. and order is perceived as unjust and that seldom goes prettily so the fact that a lot of these didn't turn out especially when you look at you know the, the character of a lot of these countries the population demographics the the degree of sectarian cleavages in the country the lack of national unity it's not surprising that a lot of these didn't necessarily turn out the way uh that that people who had taken to the streets had hoped. 
and that we had hoped at watching it. Well, I was actually going to say that I think that we need we need like a novelist perspective on this. Stage. You know, the, the big the big philosophical questions: Are revolutions good? <laughs> um, I think they are. Uh, I was, you know, I was so happy for the Middle Eastern community during the Arab Spring, and I, I think that you know. Oh, it's tough because I actually visited Egypt during the Mubarak era and saw, you know, a very stable, thriving, you know, economy of um, tourism. And I didn't see the dark side, obviously, because that's the secret prisons. That's the people being tortured for having um, democratic ideas. Mm. Um, but then I visited Egypt after the Mubarak. Uh, era during the Muslim Brotherhood's mm. time in power, and people were so disappointed, frustrated, disillusioned. They couldn't, um, if they if they could, nine out of ten of them would have gone back to Mubarak. Oh, really? uh, and you know that this is like the oldest question in the Middle East, right? Is like, can democracy flourish there? And because the countries don't have the kind of national identity that we have in uh, in the U.S. and other places, because they have these age-old religious and ethnic divides, it seems like a kind of typical democratic power-sharing system is um, not meant to be. So, so I would argue that's true for Iraq, Syria, and Libya, uh, and 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 Yemen, for sure. And then you look at this kind of tribal fractiousness of Libya and it's unclear. But the thing, like, it's interesting what you say about Egypt. This is really, it's really indicative. Like, you have a country, this is one of the reasons why a lot of the initial democratic transitions don't work. It's like you have a country that does not have a good economy, but, like, it has viability for a lot of people. A lot of people get money from tourism. But you also have a country where even during the Mubarak, Mubarak era, half of Egyptians lived on $2 a day or less. And so then you have this revolution. It's unstable. The tourism stops coming because who's going to go to Egypt in the aftermath of a revolution? So the tourism dollars dry up and a lot of the lifeblood of the economy is, is severely weakened. The new guy comes in and he can't fix these structural problems where literally half the, the country is, is living on $2 a day or less. And so people are like, well, this... This democracy thing sucks. It's worse. Than, it's materially worse than the old regime, and that was one of the reasons why you often get these backsliding in 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 post uh, authoritarian revolutions of this sort. And what you saw in, in in Egypt was exactly like that. Tunisia, by contrast, actually had like you know it was much more economically well off across the board. The median income is much higher. You had m many more people in the middle class who could sort of handle the bumps and bruises. And it was highly educated. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so like Tunisia had a much better shot from the get-go than, than, than Egypt did. Don't they have a lot of natural resources too in Tunisia? It's a smaller country. It's a, it's a little, uh, I don't know if it's an apt comparison to Egypt. Egypt is huge. It's a country of like 80 million people. There's no oil. There's nothing like that there. Um, like all of them are like under 15 years old. I mean, this is the this is this is the old saying about the Middle East. It's it's the, the tragedy of the Middle East is that the oil and the people aren't in the same places. 
<laughs> so, so it's like, hi, Qatar, you know, 500,000 people, most of whom are oil workers from the Philippines and, uh, you know, like a huge oil reserve. And then, and then the Egyptians get like a tiny little bit of oil and the, for 80 million people. <laughs> yes. But then of course, you know, same, same. I come from, I come from basically Saudi Arabia on the North Sea. I mean, like we don't exactly have a surface of people. It's it's, uh, it's not a very highly well-related country. Norway is like the Qatar of Europe. <laughs> yes, but we have more <laughs> What else about no, the UN? Was there any... Um, any? Because we were also there at the time. Isn't it relevant that... Wasn't there like a Moscow kind of spring uh, that sort of followed the Arab Spring that became kind of an interesting story there? I don't remember. Well, I mean, obviously there wasn't any action on it, but I remember uh, there was a lot there of demonstrations. This story about how the Arab Spring was moving to uh, Russia, and there were those demonstrations in Moscow, and people were like kind of trolling uh, Churkin and saying, "Are you concerned about an overthrow of the government?" Oh yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah. and, and in China as well, you know. There was a, there's a narrative that we haven't touched, which is that China and Russia were totally freaked out by the Arab Spring and the concept of a populist uprising against an authoritarian government. And they weren't too happy about these things, but they didn't know how if it would re, if it would make things worse if they reacted. Just so ironic, you know, for two, country, two countries that both you know, acquired their present mode of government through revolution, you know, it's like... Well, maybe not Russia. I guess there was a change, you know, since the revolutionary government there. But, you know, my point remains the same. You know, revolution is more within living memory in Russia and China than it is in the U.S. and certainly France. And yeah. uh, I don't think the British ever have one. And then you had the Ukraine situation. I don't think I was there when that was going on. Did the U.N. do anything? I guess none, neither of you were there either. Right. No, I wasn't really following it, Grant. It just seemed to me like some kind of like business story at the time. It wasn't really. I mean, I don't know. Was it Joe? Maybe you were there. Was it a? Was uh, it? A I was. I was. Ukraine happened while I. Well, after I had left. Um. Ukraine sort of followed. I mean, this and this is one of the things about about the UN Security Council. If you can, if if two major, you know, veto wielding powers disagree, mm-hmm. the council can't do anything. The council can't pass statements on it couldn't pass statements on georgia in 2008 you, you had these really contentious security council meetings where the ambassadors were really just facing each other down and it was it was dramatic stuff sometimes in the middle of the night but you did you could the council couldn't take any action in fact in georgia the the council had to fold up the peacekeeping mission that had kept the peace on the, the Abkhaz border because they couldn't agree what it would be called. Because it, was, yeah, after it, was, it, was, it just fell apart completely, and it just simply wasn't reauthorized. You know, and nobody had expected that. I don't think. The, the and the reason there was there was one simple reason, which was that the the Russians said it's not in Georgia anymore; it's in Abkhazia, so we can't call it the UN peacekeeping force in Georgia. We have to change the name. And they wouldn't accept anything that said in Georgia. And the Western countries were like, "No, it's still Georgia. Georgia's territorial integrity will be respected." We're not going to accept anything that doesn't have the word Georgia in it. And they killed the peacekeeping force over this. This was the only thing that they couldn't agree on. It was amazing. Yeah. 
You know what they really should have done at that time was simply to call it Macedonia and just like make everyone happy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't like like I remember 2007 or something like that. I, I think neither of you were there yet, but it was you know there were Iran sanctions and there was North Korea stuff, but there mm-hmm. there just wasn't a there weren't a lot of major international disputes of this sort going on at this that particular juncture uh and um and and think like we would actually report on stuff like the Macedonian name issue which for those who don't know is is the world's most i mean the, the Macedonians don't think it's funny at all but Greece won't accept Macedonia being called Macedonia and they've been they've been at loggerheads over this Macedonia is not in NATO just because of this issue because they have a state named or they have like a, a yes. province named Macedonia yeah um, so they insist that it's called the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, and the, the, you know the two countries won't deliver each other mail. It's <laughs> listed alphabetically at the UN under T. Literally, that's where they sit. They sit under T for the yep. former Republic of Macedonia. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Uh, the UN is the best. Have you um? <laughs> Have you followed the recent news from the UN on Syria? Because I know there, I was getting texts uh, or seeing uh-huh. stuff on Facebook from people that are still there that there were some huge meetings. Um, and yes, in fact, maybe this is the point that I can I can step in with some recent information because I was actually there. Uh, I believe it was the 18th of December um, when uh, the Security Council finally overcame whatever internal hindrances it had and agreed. Uh, on a resolution on Syria. Russia and the U.S. finally saw eye to eye. A resolution was negotiated over a space of only three hours in New York. Uh, Up until the moment they went into the council, um, and the news was that, you know, we had a resolution that was in blue. It was pretty unclear whether they were actually going to have anything at all. Up to an hour before the vote, I think. Uh, and that's been the pattern for Syria. I mean, I remember back in 2011, we would we would be like taking bets on on whether there'd be a single veto, a double veto, an abstention. You know, like we just didn't know. Like there would be audible gasps when the Russians and Chinese double vetoed. You know, like yeah. no, the people of Syria. You know, that kind of thing. And um, uh, what's interesting about the new resolution is that it follows on the heels of this Vienna communique that the parties agreed to, um, where basically everyone except Syria was in the room. It really does, I mean, it's only four pages long. It really doesn't contain much at all, and it's not under Chapter 7. So, you know, the, the, an, a legal expert would have to judge, you know, what does it really say? And to me, I mean... The, the, what basically um, my takeaway from both, I mean, the, the, the resolution and the communique, is that the only thing that they can agree on is that the war should end and that serious territorial integrity should be respected there shouldn't be a partition now those of you who have listened to this podcast know that i kind of have a soft spot for partition for reasons i I won't go into at this time but those are basically the only two things they can agree on the thing they can't agree on is who actually runs the place and how (laughs) so the conflict (laughs) continues the the russians are basically like the war should end and assad should stay in power and or, or something close to it and the west is like the war should end and assad should not stay in power but they they just left out the latter two halves of both of those sentences and basically just said the war should end. 
<laughs> that was basically, I mean, we're, it's a step in the right direction. And maybe it'll be the start mm-hmm. of a political settlement. But And maybe everybody's hurting so bad. And, you know, the, the spillover from all the ISIS attacks and, you know, in the United States, in Paris. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, that came basically just like a, a month, almost to the day uh, after those horrible attacks in Paris. Yeah, and the Russian jet that was that was you know, passenger jet that was downed, and then the San Bernardino attacks. ISIS succeeded in attacking the, uh, you know, uh, pissing off basically like the, there was there was like like a Russian French alliance basically against ISIS at the United Nations Security Council, which is like the first time that Russia and France have been allied since, I don't know, like World War One or something. So it was, yeah. it was just like, it was like way to piss off everybody, guys. It was, it's, it's, it's remarkable how, how nobody likes ISIS and yet they continue to endure. What's depressing. I, I think, I guess my takeaway is that like, the arc of history is long and it doesn't necessarily bend towards justice, but oftentimes it does. And I think what we're seeing, I, I remember this great quote. It's its not quite accurate just because of urbanization now, but by the, the conflict management specialist Baring, uh, and uh, writer Barrington Moore, who said, the, the process of modernization begins with peasant revolutions that fail. It, it basically... Mm. This, these these bankrupt political systems and these staid you know monarchies and uh, that that are still holding on and and sort of Arab nationalist republics that are that are not holding on as much, uh, were not providing for their citizens and these revolutions never had much of a chance of succeeding. But in so doing, they they open up a path to a future where where the states have to modernize and start providing for their citizens, or else this is just going to keep happening. And so, you know, it's it's like the old apocryphal quote, possibly apocryphal, of of Zhu Enlai visiting uh, Paris uh, in the sixties, asked about yeah, asked about the French Revolution and saying it's too soon to tell. It's too soon to tell. Like Livia, Livia just had, you know, like in in eighteen ninety one, the you know the United States was not a surefire bet, you know. It was it was still 130 years away from giving women the right to vote. So it's it's like these things take time, and I'm still hopeful for many countries in this region down the line. But they have to resolve some stuff first, and and each one of them has to resolve it in their own way and has its own dynamic. So I guess my my one takeaway is that you know the arc of history is long, and that treat each country individually rather than than sort of being like you know. Uh, taking this sort of grand sweep of like, you know, the Arab world is in revolt, you know, that kind of thing. I would like all of us, you know, basically maybe like in seconds or less, take take a take a horizon scanning moment and see where do you see this thing going? I mean, like we've all seen, we've seen a bunch of conflicts flare up and then get resolved. But the Syria thing seems to be quite different from anything that we've seen, you know, based on experience, you know, what you've seen before, what are the possible, uh, possible paths it could take. I would say that I still demographically, geopolitically, I still have high hopes for Libya, but it definitely could become like Somalia or Yemen, like a, a, just a completely ungoverned state. But it it has a lot of potential given its relatively low population, lots of oil, uh, and lack of sort of geopolitical intrigue. Like no no two major actors disagree, you know, geo, regional actors disagree on what kind of government, you know, Libya or who should be running Libya. So I, I have hopes for Libya, though I wouldn't necessarily throw in all of my chips. As for Syria, 
Syria has all of, I mean, it's it's almost a worst case scenario. You look at the, the, the geopolitical interest of Iran versus Saudi Arabia, of Russia versus the United States, of uh, of the, the sort of Sunni-Shia split, um, the, the, the Kurdish bid for independence, the Turks getting involved, just, uh, and, and then, you know, very young population, uh, and, you know, oil diffused through the country that can be controlled by different actors, and just the the, deg- the, sh- the sheer number of different fault lines within the country right now, and the, the complete lack of organization among the rebels, but the complete lack of legitimacy by the gov- of the government in two-thirds of the country, this could go on for 20 years. It's really bad. Like, it could be really bad. Yeah, I haven't followed it enough, but I, I, I you know, how much, how... <laughs> How much can both sides take? I mean, ISIS getting bombed constantly, and I guess they continue to recruit people, but uh, there's been measures to try to curb their ability to do that over the internet. And I imagine that the kind of flare-ups that we're seeing, like in Paris and in Jakarta and San Bernardino, that kind of thing is just going to become more frequent. But I don't imagine like the actual control that they they have now in Syria is is tenable for another few years. And I don't know about the Assad side. I mean, they've got money coming from Russia, but Russia's not doing so well financially now. And, you know, so what's their breaking point? Um, it's sort of like last man standing, it seems. But I, the current major players, I don't see how they, they keep going that long. Not 20 years. It's just crazy. One of one of the problems is that the the government is kind of a minority sectarian government, as we talked about earlier, and as such, it represents a diehard constituency that's kind of geographically concentrated, and so people will fight for this government really until the end. But but um, but most of the people in the country consider it to be a completely illegitimate government and would never submit to its rule ever again. That's one of the reasons why I'm kind of partial to partition. But uh, And we'll talk more about that on a future podcast. But uh, um, I, I think the, uh, there, there's something in conflict management called a hurting stalemate where everybody's losing so badly that it's not in their interest to go on with the war, even if that means not, not winning uh, outright. And that could lead to a, some kind of political settlement uh, or, you know, some sort of federated system. I mean, it, it used to be, it's interesting, like Syria used to be a very centralized country, very Stalinist. Most of the economy, three quarters of the economy went through Damascus. Now something like 17% of the economy goes through Damascus. It's just not a country anymore. But here's, here's the question, like, you know, how much is really about Syria, you know, and how much? Syria just kind of like the battleground, you know, for all these different interests to me. That's the other thing is that every single one of these guys can get continue to get external support and flee and, and cross-border sanctuary. Like ISIS can go across the border into Iraq. Yeah, I mean, like at a certain point, isn't that just the venue? You know, I mean, if, 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 it, if it finishes in Syria, it'll go somewhere else, you know? We, sh- we, we shall see. Or as, as, they say, as they say in Norway, the one who lives shall see. The one. Really? Oh, they say that in Norway? How about, Why? How, how about we? That's <laughs> that. You know, that's a that's a dark thought for a dark Norwegian night where it's negative twelve <laughs> degrees centigrade. Well, I mean, you Jeez. know, country within living memory was a very poor place that basically survived on herring and wool sweaters. You know, it's, it's oil wealth is pretty. Herring, herring and sweaters. 
it was a place you know where where we didn't use to heat bedrooms you know we only heated the central rooms and then you know because you could only afford to heat some rooms in the house this sounds like an essay julia you think so yeah and then today you know it's it's uh it's guitar on the north sea can can we close out we we gotta we gotta close out this podcast because i have a strict rule of not having them go over an hour but can we close out just on apropos of of nothing can we close out with julia you explaining very briefly the story of the artichoke just to give people a perspective on norway as it was versus norway as it is ah the artichoke i believe it was actually two artichokes i'm pretty sure it wasn't just one i think it was two um, back in the uh, 70s, when my Californian mother moved to Norway, uh, Norway at the time, you know, there was no such thing as a green leafy vegetable. Uh, the only thing that you had in the winter was basically carrots and potatoes and stuff. Um, and one day at their local store in the 1970s, my mom uh, went in to find, you know, the staff gathered around this bizarre object that nobody had any idea what it was. And it was two forlorn artichokes that had ended up in someone's box of potatoes and carrots somehow from some vegetable delivery service. Um, and they just gave them to her because they had no idea what it was. No one had ever seen an artichoke. So that's that's basically the end of the story is that, you know, this is a country where people didn't used to know what artichokes were. I think you, you got your lead too. <laughs> No, I mean, I, um, he and my dad were very, very happy because they love artichokes. You know, they took them home. I think they steamed them and dipped them in butter and ate them. Mm. Uh, and that was the only artichoke, you know, that had ever been seen in, in, in Norway by them you know, for years and years and years. It's amazing how much Norway has changed in the last 30 or 40 years. Exactly. And I guess that's sort of my, my takeaway is that it'll be really, int- you know, like, let's, let's, let's run this podcast back in like 2035 and see... <laughs> where a lot of these countries are like i think we'll be shocked how well uh, you know how how successful some of them have become and you know but maybe not all of them yeah well it'll be interesting that's that's the most positive note that i can end on for a podcast that began with like woohoo the arab spring is happening everything's (laughs) gonna be great and then it descended into the you know the the morass that we see today um but, uh, but I want to thank both of you for being on the podcast. And uh, if you have any sort of internet plugs for things you've written on, uh, on the web or your own web presence that you would like to promote, this is the time to do it. Um, well, pretty much everything I've ever written is found, can be found at hernandezwrote.tumblr. So if you're curious about fiction, personal essays, and journalism, that can be found there. Right now, I'm writing about feral cats in Las Vegas. So, if you're interested in that problem, <laughs> look for the March issue of Desert Companion. I, I'm actually really curious about that. We're going to have to do a follow up podcast about feral cats. In the meantime, I want to thank you so much for listening to the podcast. This is Ambassadors at Large. You can find the podcast online at joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash podcast. And you can subscribe for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye.